Well, good morning, family. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to Psalm 73. And I think you'll want to follow along. Psalm 73. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we as we come to His Word. Father, thank You for this time. I pray that You would speak through Your Word. May we have ears that listen and hearts that are attentive. And may You take Your Word and use it to encourage and to challenge and to move and to change us. For the glory of Jesus and in His name we ask it. Amen. Most of you are aware that I grew up out in El Paso, Texas, which is built around the Franklin Mountains. My mom and dad would frequently take my two older brothers and me up into those mountains where they would turn us loose to burn off all that boy energy. And we'd go hiking and climbing up in the mountains. We would choose a peak and we would head for the top. There was always a sense of accomplishment when you would reach the top with all the limbs intact and everything. But the real reward of the climb was always the view. From the top of a mountain peak, you see everything from a different perspective. You take in this big, impressive, panoramic view and you see things that can't be perceived from ground level. And Psalm 73 opens like that. It's like a view from a mountaintop, a sweeping panoramic statement. Look there in verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good. God is surely good. He is certainly good to His people, to Israel. He's certainly, surely good to folks who are pure in heart. A grand declaration that God is good. A grand statement of confidence and assurance and trust in Him. It's the kind of statement that you'd hear often someone make in church. Surely God is good to His people. Surely He is good to those who are pure in heart. And then we respond with something like, Amen! Surely God is good to His people. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But I wonder, are you just saying that? Or do you really believe that? Are you really confident in that? Are there times where you have perhaps doubted that or questioned, is God really good to His people? Are there times maybe where, and maybe some of you are going through that right now, where you wonder, is that really true? Have you ever been so deep in doubt about God's goodness that you're on the verge of throwing away your faith? If you've ever been there, this psalm is for you. The psalmist has walked your path. He begins this psalm, as we noted, standing on the summit, looking out and declaring great praise to God, great assurance and confidence in God's goodness, But as we keep reading, we discover that he almost didn't make it there. Look in verse 2. 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. If you've ever done any climbing in mountains, you understand that climbing to the top of a mountain can be difficult. Any little stumble on a rock, any little slip on some loose soil, and it might bring a inconvenience or it might result in absolute disaster. Our songwriter, using the metaphor here of hiking and climbing, says that his feet slipped, he lost his footing, and he almost fell into spiritual disaster. The songwriter here is a man named Asaph. You may or may not know much about Asaph. Usually when we come to the Psalms, we think about David because David wrote most of them. But Asaph is a songwriter who's credited in the Scriptures here to writing 12 of the Psalms. The Bible tells us that Asaph was a skilled musician and he was also called in Scripture a prophet. He was appointed by King David to as the chief musician for worship at the tabernacle. He oversaw 288 musicians which, who they sang and played in the worship in the tabernacle. After David's time when Solomon, David's son, came along and, and finished the construction, built the temple, Asaph was still on board as the chief musician, the music director of worship in the temple. He was the head of a musical family and that family for several centuries led the worship, the musical worship in the temple. Asaph, in other words, is a great man of God, a great leader in the worship of God. He was a fixture in the music and the worship of the church and yet he says there was a time when I doubted God so much so that I almost slipped and I almost gave up. This fixture in the church, this great leader, almost fell away from trusting in God. This psalm is a reminder that it's not just young people. It's not just new believers who might struggle in their trust in God. But it can be seasoned saints. Any one of us can face a period of doubt, of struggle in our trust and confidence in God. And so Asaph wants us to learn from his journey. He doesn't just lay out before us a psalm of praise and a psalm of confidence and lead us to think that he's a man who never struggled. Rather, he bears his soul and he helps us to understand exactly the close call that he had of slipping and nearly falling off the path on the way to this place of confidence where the psalm starts. He helps us to navigate our way through our own doubts. And he wants us to help us arrive safely with him at the place of rest and trust in God. So with that, Asaph wants us to wants to call attention to his slip, his stumble. We go back to verse two. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is it that 
caused this great man of God to slip and to almost stumble and to almost give up on, on his faith in God. He was said when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he started to compare his life with the prosperity of some ungodly people. And he discovered that wicked people prosper. He became envious of their prosperity as he observed the gangsters, as he looked at the sleazy entertainers, he looked at the politicians, the drug lords, the corporate raiders, the crooked doctors, the shady lawyers, the evil dictators, the petty despots, the gossiper down the street. And what he discovered is that wicked people are out there prospering. Prospering big time. And he notes, for they have no pangs of, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He says there in verse 4, they have no problems. Not until they die. Life just goes on easy. Easy peasy. And not only that, they look great. He says their bodies are fat. We think that's bad in that day and time. That's good. If you're fat, it means you're rich. Says, in other words, by our way of thinking, the wicked are the beautiful people. Not really much is changed at times. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. These wicked people, their life, they don't seem to face the daily problems that most every, all the rest of us face. The wicked people, verse 6, he says, therefore their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. He says they're, they're evil and they look around and everything's going great for them and they become arrogant. They become proud. They flaunt their arrogance. They're not even ashamed of their arrogance. In their arrogance, they are violent. Maybe physically violent, maybe certainly violent with their tongues. These wicked people, they destroy other people. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. He's saying that they overflow with evil. He goes on, their hearts overflow with their follies. They, they are numb, they're callous to evil, their evil knows no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten opposition. In other words, they mock and make fun of others. They destroy people with their tongues. Verse 9, they set up their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. means that they exalt themselves. They puff themselves up. They consider themselves above God and above everyone else. Verse 10, therefore His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Saying therefore, in other words, people, even people who should be following God, they turn and follow these people these people are obviously, they are arrogant, they are evil, and everybody loves them. They are celebrities. They, it doesn't matter how evil they are. It doesn't matter how blatantly obvious it is that they are arrogant and they are cruel and they are vicious. People love them. And they find no fault in them. They seem to not even notice or care. Does it sound like people you see today? 
And they say, verse 11, how can God know? Is there no knowledge? Is there knowledge, excuse me, in the Most High? In other words, they speak against God and they speak against God's authority and they say, they make fun of Him. God doesn't. If God is real, He's either impotent or He's ignorant. He's incompetent or irrelevant. In verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. Asaph says, that's it. There's the wicked for you. They're always at ease. Not every ungodly person prospers, but it seems like the vast majority of them are. They're rotten people. And Asaph is disgusted. These observations lead him, in verse 13, to self-pity. Verses 13 through 16, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean, and I have washed my hands in innocence. He says, in other words, I've been good for nothing. Not the way your dad told you that. You're good for nothing. What he means is, I've been good, and it has gotten me nothing. The wicked people, they're out there just partying it up and doing all this stuff and being evil and rotten and mean and vicious and they, they're prospering and I'm sitting here following all the rules. I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm playing the game straight. And I go out and look in my driveway and there's no Ferrari there. But it seems like all the wicked people have one or two. All the day long, verse 14, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Not only have I been good for nothing, I have suffered for nothing. I have suffered personal pain. It's not just that I'm not prosperous, but because I'm being good, I get dumped on. Because I'm doing what's right, I am physically and verbally attacked. He's saying God seems to prosper the wicked and He seems to punish those who are righteous, who are doing the right stuff. And it stinks. Has anybody here ever felt that? And I'm playing by the rules and all I get is junk. And the people who are out there just living as rotten as can be, everything just goes well. Asaph says, that just about cost me my faith. He couldn't get past it. He saw this and it just ate at him day after day after day. And he became more discouraged. Is there no justice? Verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph moves into despair. He knows that his thinking is wrong. That if he had actually expressed what he was feeling, he would, it would be a betrayal. I would have betrayed the next generation of God's children. They might be tempted to hear what I'm saying and follow along. Have you ever, by the way, have you ever known that your thinking is messed up? but you still persist in your messed up thinking? 
You know something is wrong, but you keep doing it. You know something is right, but you don't do it. In other words, it's not that you, it's not that you don't know what's right, but you're acting, instead of acting on what's right, you act on your feelings. Anybody else ever been there? Because your pastor struggles with that. That's what Asaph says. He says here, if I had said, I will speak this, if I had said everything he's just said so far, and I just start proclaiming this to everybody, it's not fair, it's not right, the bad people always win, and the good people we just get dumped on. He said, other people would just go, oh, this is the music leader, the worship leader at church, I think I'm going home now. He says, if I'd said that, I know it would have been wrong and it would have been a betrayal. But this is what he's feeling on the inside. So he says, I kept it quiet. Notice he says, he keeps it in his thoughts. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. The more he kept it inside, the more he contemplated it and kept thinking it, it became oppressive to him. And he sank into dark times, into despair. This is where he almost lost it. But something changes. Just before he he totally falls and slips off the precipice and falls to spiritual ruin, something changes. And that change happens in verse 17. He gets a grip. A renewed focus. We find it here in verse 17. Don't miss it. Look at what he says. That's what was going on till... I entered the sanctuary of God. The change happens, in other words, when he goes to church. So when he went to church, I entered the sanctuary of God. There, everything changes and comes back into perspective. He was ready to bail out. But at church, something happened. I say that it's why you and I need to be in church. Not just in the building. Church is not a building. Church is the people of God. We need to be assembled with the people of God. Why do we need to be there? There's at least three things. We could probably come up with a whole long list of other things. There's at least three things though that happen when we gather as the church that are essential that God uses to inform us, to transform us, to encourage us, to grow us, and to equip us. You see, when we come together as the church, we come together and we engage in worship of God. As we do what we've already done today and be reminded through song and through word and through testimony and we, and we come and we worship God, we honor Him for who He is, God uses that to inform us and to change us as we worship Him. We not only engage in the worship of God, we hear from the Word of God what we're doing right now. We hear God speak to us through His Word. Thirdly, we interact with the people of God. The Scripture calls the people of God the body of Christ. And as we come together and and each part of the body does its stuff, we are encouraged and we're strengthened, we're built up. And it's exactly why the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, let us not give up or neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some or some is in the, habit of, or in, the, in the habit of doing, but let us all the more, let us encourage each other all the more as we see 
the day approaching. And the day is talking about the day of Christ. What, the script, what he means is that the Scripture tells us when the return of Jesus gets nearer and nearer, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the worse things are going to be. The more difficult it's going to be to stand firm in following Christ. And he says all the more we need to be together. Every day we live, we're one day closer to the return of Jesus. And it's the more important that, than ever that we gather together with the church. If the chapel is not your home church, I'm not saying you've got to be at the chapel. I'm saying, though, you need to be in church. You need to be with God's people. It's not just an optional thing. It's something we desperately need. And it's not something that we need to do just when we feel like it. Matter of fact, it's something we need to do when we don't feel like it. Especially when we don't feel like it. It's when we most desperately need it. It's interesting, Asaph doesn't tell us what happened in the sanctuary, what happened at church that triggered his change of heart. He doesn't say if it was when he was listening to the words of a song as he's leading choir practice. He doesn't say that it was some, something that he heard in the special music or in the hymns or the, the choruses they sang. He doesn't say that it was something that the, the preacher said or something that he heard as they were reading the Scripture or even something as he was sitting quietly praying. He doesn't tell us because, quite frankly, that's not the point. The point is that it happened when he came to church. And it happened because despite being in the midst of struggle and doubt, he chose to stay engaged in seeking God. To come, to hear, to listen, to pray, to worship. That's where he regained his grip. And then he gives us three tips, as it were, three keys to help you and me to avoid losing hope when things get difficult. Verses 17 to 20, again, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood there the wicked people's final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakens, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. It says, when I came to church, when I listened to the Word of God, when I spent time with God's people, when I worshipped God, his perspective was changed. And he realized that the wicked people aren't to be envied, they are to be pitied. He remembered the fate of the wicked. When we view life through the lens of today, when we view life through the lens of now, wicked, evil people can appear to be winning. They can appear to be prosperous. They can appear to be happy. They can appear to be everything's just going wonderfully. But he says, don't be fooled by the lens of now. In the presence of God, suddenly the blinders fall off and He sees them through the lens of righteousness. He sees them through the lens of eternity. He sees them through God's viewpoint. And what he sees is a horrible thing. Those who seem so prosperous are terribly impoverished. Those who seem so mighty are desperately weak. Those who are so arrogant are so infinitesimally irrelevant. 
Those who seem so happy are destined for horror because they are perched in a slippery place on the precipice of disaster because these evil, wicked people will one day ultimately and inevitably face the judgment of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. No exceptions. And at that point, it is too late. The only point for them is the same as it is for any one of us. Turn from our sin and turn to the grace of God, the salvation, the grace that He offers through Jesus Christ by trusting in Him. Asaph, when his when he thinks of this, he realizes I shouldn't be envying them. I should be pitying them. Secondly, remember not only the fate of the wicked, but verse 23, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you and you hold me by my right hand. You see, if you are a child of God, if you've placed your faith in Christ and you are, you're a child of God, He wants us to understand and remember that God's presence is always with us. God will never desert us. He says, yet I am always with you. I, God's presence, He never deserts us. Sometimes we think we're alone. Sometimes we're on the path, we're on the climb, and, and we think we're alone, and, and it gets so oppressive when we look at, at how the wicked seem to be prospering, and we're suffering and struggling, and we're tempted to think we're alone. And he says, but I wasn't. Not even when I am senseless and ignorant and foolish. Like, he says, a brute beast like a foolish little animal, like the silly squirrel who runs out in front of your car and they never know what to do. <laughs> and they always run the wrong way. <laughs> right? And he says, that's how we are. And he says, when I'm, even when my heart was grieved, my spirit was bitter, I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast, yet even then, I wasn't alone. Isn't that good news? Because any of you is like a foolish squirrel, a brute beast. He never deserts us, even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of our doubts. Not only that, He says, you hold me by my right hand. He holds on to us. When we were out there hiking and climbing around as kids, because I was a good deal younger than my brothers. Actually, I still am. I haven't caught up yet. But you don't appreciate when you're, you know, 10 years old just how small and foolish and, you know, whatever that you are. But inevitably, as we're out there climbing around, we would go to, we'd do things that really, in every case, they were kind of foolish as I look back. But my, one of my brothers would always go in front and blaze the trail. The other brother would always go behind me. They were looking out for their little brother. And I didn't really think much about it at the time, except when I'd start to fall, and there was always a hand 
there was always a hand grabbing me and pushing me and pulling me and, and rescuing me. May I say that's what he's saying here. We're never alone and his hand is always holding on. Asaph is so grateful for God's presence. And in the midst of his doubts, he remembered not only the fate of the wicked, but the presence of God with us. And what he realized is that having God's presence and having God's protection in our life is a far greater treasure and a far greater blessing than any of the, bless, than any of the treasures, any of the riches, any of the wealth, any of the glories that the wicked people out there have. See, you might think that it would just be awesome and wonderful if you had ten mansions and Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Maseratis and helicopters and jets and, and you know, yachts and all of that stuff that it would just be awesome. But you know, none of that compares with the treasure of having a relationship with God. Having His presence in your life His watch and care and protection over you. That's what Asaph is saying. Thirdly, not only remember the fate of the wicked, not only remember God's presence with us, remember that God has a plan for us. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you'll take me into glory. God has a plan and purpose for our life. Nothing that comes into our life is random nor purposeless or pointless. Whether it is good or whether it is seems bad, God promises, Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For all of us who are in relationship with God, we have confidence that whatever it is that comes into our life, God has a plan for that and it's for our good. And so while Asaph looks at the prosperity of the righteous and he looks at himself and he says, here I am, I don't have all that stuff. And worse than that, I'm even getting beat up on. What he realizes is that God has a plan even when I'm getting beat up on. And it's for good. God has a plan even when sickness comes into our life. Even when disability comes into our life. Even when loss comes into our life. And the good that God designs and the plan that God has is better than all of that other stuff that we're tempted to grow envious of. And then he goes on, and afterwards you will take me into glory. God has prepared for us a glorious future. So much we could say about that, but Paul says this simply. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, whatever things we endure, whatever we're going through, whatever we think we lack right now, none of it is even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What God has in store for us will outweigh everything so much that it will never even be another thought when we get into eternity. The things that God has planned for us are eternal things. And they are awesome things. Not one of us will ever, he says, lack anything that he will not repay a hundredfold. The great hope of the Christian is not here and now. 
the great hope of the Christian, the thing that we live for, the thing that we aim for, is not the stuff that, as Jesus said, moth and rust corrupt and that thieves break in and steal, the stuff of time and space that seems so big and seems so valuable and seems so important, but in a very short time it will all be gone. And the older you get, the older you realize just how short that time is. It's hard at at 12 and 15 and 18. It seems like things last so long. But talk to anybody here who's over the age of 50 and 60 and 70 and you realize life is, as the Scripture says, it's a vapor. It's here and it's gone so quickly. And if we build our hope in the stuff that is of this earth, we are building our hope on a vapor. The Christian hope and the hope of Scripture is always focused on the stuff that lasts forever. And Asaph says, there it is. God has a glorious future for us. It lasts forever. He's now back on his feet and he completes his climb to the top of the mountain and he finishes the psalm with the lessons he's learned along the way. And I'll just read the verses. He says, so whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's His hope. It's the relationship with God is what really is the great treasure. Keep going. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Father, we needed to hear this because most every one of us, at some point in time, we get our focus off on other things and we get to a point where we grow discouraged, we grow disheartened. We see the prosperity of folks who run from You, who are living wickedly, Evil sometimes seems to win. And we grow discouraged. And sometimes we we quit. How we need the, the perspective of eternity. How we need your perspective. How we need to see what really is. That just looking at the surface on this world... What the world values is an illusion. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And there is judgment that is coming. But You and Your grace have provided to us grace, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, treasures forevermore. And above all that, relationship with You the greatest treasure of all is to know and to experience and to enjoy the love of the great lover of our soul, the One who made us. So Father, may we, through this psalm, be encouraged and take heart. Be renewed in our, in our confidence, in our, in our trust, and in our commitment to follow You with all we are and all we have. 
And this we ask in Jesus' name.